Dr. Mona Safadi is the executive director and founder of the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, comprised of societies representing 70% of all U.S. physicians. She founded the consortium in 2016 in conjunction with the George Mason University Center for Climate Change. Under her leadership, the consortium has grown into a nationwide coalition of societies, organizations, and advocates mobilizing support for equitable policies that address the health impacts of climate change. Edward Maybach is a Mason Distinguished University Professor and Communication Scientist who is expert in the uses of strategic communication and social marketing to address climate change and related public health challenges. His research, funded by NSF, NASA and private foundations, focuses on public understanding of climate change and clean energy and the psychology underlying public engagement. In 2021, Ed was identified by Thomson Reuters as one of the world's 10 most influential scientists working on climate change. Center for Climate Change Communication, Damona Safadi, Ed Mebe, welcome to One Planet Podcast and Business in Society. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, you know, Mona and Ed, your work is really at the intersection of human health and global environmental change. And you've done tremendous work in your medical society consortium on climate and health, which now represents, I believe it's over 70% of U.S. doctors. It represents societies that have the membership of over 70% of U.S. physicians. Yes. And, you know, really working to outline the health promises of climate solutions, you know, just, and you may correct me on this, just to share some statistics, if people at home are still not getting the picture that planetary health is linked to human health, I believe it's over 8.7 million deaths annually now due to air pollution. It's alarming 58% of infectious diseases confronted by humanity world, worldwide have been aggravated by climate hazards, not to mention the chronic inflammatory diseases now recognized as a leading cause of death in the world today and how climate change is killing the organisms in our soil, leaching the nutrients and leading to inflammatory diseases. So oh, you outline all of this in your, your wonderful surveys and projects. What are your priorities in this decade of transformational change? In answering that question, I'll refer to a policy agenda that we launched in 2019. And we refer to it as the call to action on climate, health, and equity, a policy action agenda. And it has 10 action areas, each of which could contribute not only to addressing climate change, but also to improving health. And so most of those can have a direct and pretty immediate impact on health. The first, of course, is to clean our sources of energy so that when we power our lives, our homes, our industry, we're not spewing into the air pollutants that make many people sick and have the potential to make many others sick. And so energy, the source of electric power is a big one that needs to be addressed. Another is transportation. Right now in the United States, about 30% of all the greenhouse gases are accounted for by transportation. And if we were able to move to no and low carbon transportation, then we would get rid of those sources of pollution that endangering people's health and causing asthma attacks and worsening of chronic lung disease and heart disease and many other health problems. And then we want to greatly improve energy efficiency that when people heat their homes or use appliances or cool their homes, in many cases, they're using some outdated technologies, which are inefficient and which put a lot more pollutants into the air than are really necessary. And so if we address that, we would be making much better use of the principles of efficiency and we would be getting cleaner air in the bargain. Another one that we're very interested in is the health system itself. Because it turns out that within the United States, the health system accounts for about eight and a half percent of all the greenhouse gases that go into the atmosphere. And so if we could clean up the health delivery system, improve its efficiency and change its sources of power and the way it uses transportation, we could right there achieve an eight and a half percent reduction in greenhouse gases. So those are four of the elements of our policy action agenda. And let me add to something, which is that take a step back and sort of look at the big picture of why is this a tough issue to deal with? Why is it that people worldwide were struggling with 
making the kinds of decisions and enacting on the decisions that will get to the root causes of the problem and stop the warming and start to protect our communities so that people and other things we care about aren't needlessly hurt. And the answer to that question is most people worldwide accept the realities of climate change, but they see it as a distant problem, distant on three different dimensions, distant in terms of time. So they see it not necessarily as today's problem, but a future problem, distant in terms of location, not, you know, maybe somewhere, somebody's dealing with this, but not us, not here in my community. And perhaps most importantly, distant in terms of species. So people tend to see this as a plants, penguins, and polar bears problem and not a people problem. And that's a challenge that creates a challenge for us to engage the public in thinking about what this means for them today, because on all three of those dimensions, they feel like they've got some time, some distance in order to think these problems through. There's a second challenge, which makes this work really hard. And that is that it's sort of fundamental to the human condition that we don't like to pay today for things that we don't get to enjoy the benefits until the distant future. And so when people think about climate solutions, they tend to think about being required to pay more today for the things that they're already getting for benefits that will accrue from a more stable climate, maybe for their children, maybe for their grandchildren, or maybe for their great grandchildren. So that's a tough sell, if you will. It's the fundamental insight of the field of behavioral economics that people don't like to pay today for benefits that accrue in the distant future. The reason why the work that Mona Sarfati is doing and her colleagues at the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health is so important is because the doctors and other health professionals have this extraordinary opportunity to address both of those challenges successfully. Doctors and other health professionals are highly trusted worldwide, so people listen to what they say. They have the opportunity to start a conversation about climate change that talks about its relevance to something we all care deeply about today, and that is its relevance to our health today, to the health of our children, to the health of our parents, our family members, and our neighbors. So they're trusted. They're talking about something that makes it personally relevant, which shrinks that psychological distance that people typically experience when they think about climate change. And perhaps most importantly, they have a, by talking about climate solutions as health solutions, the climate solutions typically will take decades in order to manifest by cleaning up our energy supplies, our air and our water today, it will help stabilize our climate going forward. But the reason why health professionals have such an opportunity to sidestep around that, that conundrum of behavioral economics is because the health benefits of climate solutions begin to manifest today. So if me and Mona and our neighbors succeed in closing down the coal fire power plant in our community, we enjoy the cleaner air, cleaner water, and better health starting the very day that we shut down that coal fire power plant. So on all fronts, uh, on all three of those challenges, health professionals really have a unique opportunity to help start better conversations that speak to people's personal interests, the things they care about most in the world. And that will make clear how taking action today delivers important, highly valued benefits today as well. And Ed, I was thinking about you and Mona just the other day when I was in a Saratoga weekend market and there was a little boy from Indian descent. Both his parents are self-educated sellers of Indian food to the Saratoga community. And the little boy was wearing proudly a NASA t-shirt and he's talked to me over the years about loving rockets and loving Lockheed Martin and knowing the equipment of outer space. Can you tell some of your research on why you found a place like NASA trustworthy and what are the other places that are trustworthy so that we can get traction on climate change? Bruce, I'm so glad you asked that question because in the past couple of months, I've had the opportunity to be in France and Paris, actually in Amsterdam and the West coast of the U S 
as well as here on the East Coast of the U.S. where I live. And in all of those places, I see young people, boys, girls, older people of every possible ethnicity and background wearing NASA t-shirts. <laughs> That's so darn interesting. NASA has, I believe, has one of the strongest brands worldwide, and I think they've earned it. They've done incredible things over the decades. They put a man on the moon and they consistently do things to amaze us. Most recently, the web telescope, right? The images from the web telescope, the images of our universe, where we live, are amazing people worldwide with this awe and wonder of the universe we live in. And so NASA is incredibly respected. It's an incredible brand. And to the point you're making, people want to affiliate with their brand by wearing, you know, their swag. But I hear through the grapevine that a lot of your research over the last 15 years has been useful to NASA. So please tell us how they've used what you found and how we can gain traction in a world of deep distrust from these examples. Our most recent poll, our climate change in the American minds poll that we conducted in spring of this year, we ask people how much they trust a variety of different potential sources of information about global warming. And when we look at their answers, we subdivide them by people's political identity, which party they belong to, and also by where they fall on the political spectrum from liberal to conservative. And it's really helpful to do that because here in America and in many countries around the world, our lives are becoming more polarized along partisan lines. And so it helps to understand who are the trusted voices by different groups within the public. What we find is that NASA is one of the few trusted voices among conservative Americans, which is very helpful to know because A, it, it gives NASA the courage, the confidence in their conviction about the need to educate all Americans and to know that they are trusted by conservative Americans helps them feel comfortable in all that they are doing. The other highly trusted voice, especially among conservatives, as I sort of intimated earlier, are people like Mona. And myself, I too am a health professional. I'm Mona is a clinical as well as a public health professional. I am a public health professional. And so we've learned that conservative Americans, as well as liberal Americans and people all over the world, trust health professionals highly on a whole variety of ways, but including as our, as we learned in our survey this spring, including as a source of information about the personal relevance of global warming. So this is why health professionals have such a unique opportunity to help people understand the personal relevance of the threat and the personal relevance, frankly, of the benefits that will be delivered when we take the actions where we collectively, as communities, as states, as nations, and as the world, we take the actions that need to be taken in order to protect the health of our climate and the health of our people. Mona, I want to ask you, your decision to have the co-chairs of your board of directors and Dr. Schroeder and Novelli. But before we get to that, we're at a historic moment this month. The most significant American-based climate legislation has been signed. It passed the Senate and it's got 400 billion more innovation. And I wanted to try and help engage you two in your careers regarding why this is such a historic moment. In the 30 years that I've been watching climate debates, the emotional back and forth had to do with fear and alarm and surprise. Now, the reason that I'm so fascinated with the trust of NASA and the new work that you're doing, and is that they overcome fear and alarm and surprise, even though they might be about sending up a rocket to the moon or dealing with something like global images of the universe, incredibly technical, technological ventures, right? They succeed. And if you have any opinions in your research, Ed, about how corporations are overcoming their fear of innovation or their surprise that they can rely on the government now to take some money to make clean energy doable. Yes, I do. And then I want to tee Mona up because Mona is actually a person who spent eight years of her life supporting American senators create good policy. And so she will have a unique insight into what it took to get the Senate to pass the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 that you were talking about earlier. But I want to talk about it first as a 
brilliant act of rhetoric. They chose, rather than calling it the Climate Crisis Act of 2022, which would have never been passed by our Senate, they called it the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So the name of the act signals that it is addressing one of the most proximal concerns on the minds of many Americans today, which is the fact that we're seeing a level of inflation that we haven't seen in our country in 30 years. And that has people worried. They're also, by the way, worried about the price of gasoline at the pump. And to your point, Bruce, this is not a fear. This is not a name that promises something scary. It promises to deliver something that we want. So with that, as a communication scientist, I just wanted to add that point of view. There's so much to say on this subject, but I, I really want to start with the advocates and the activists because at the moment that President Biden was elected and announced that he was going to utilize an all-of-government approach to address climate change, he asked every single agency of the federal government, that is, every cabinet member and their agency, to think about how they specifically could do something within their area of responsibility to address the crisis of climate change. And polls had shown before Biden was elected, and they have continued to show that people are concerned and worry about climate change has been slowly rising over the last 10 to 15 years. And it has gotten to the point now where you have a critical mass of Americans who are concerned. And so that's the backdrop. But in addition to that, you have a critical mass of advocates that have been speaking to the public speaking to Congress, speaking to the members of the executive branch and to their local governments about making the change that we need so that we can address this existential threat. So we've seen in the last two years, the greatest crescendo of activity on the part of advocacy groups around the entire country and often also based in Washington, D.C., not only individually, but coming together as coalitions. You know, when we started, the health sector had maybe a few groups who were interested. Now, two years later, it's pretty much every health group in America is concerned about climate change. You look at the environmental sector, you've got initially well-known groups like the Environmental Defense Fund or the Natural Resources Defense Council or the Sierra Club who were leading the charge in the environmental sector to take on climate change. But that now has mushroomed so that there's just countless organizations nationally and locally who are concerned not only about climate change, but also about conservation and making sure that we don't lose the beautiful country that we have. I mean, this is a magnificent country with amazing resources and people really value what they have not only in their political system, but also in the reality of what it's like on the ground, the parks, the beauty of the land, the national parks, et cetera. And so the rising concern about all of that, and then on the part of businesses, of course, we have you know the report about risky business, which was, I guess, from several years ago, that was put out by some of the leaders of the business community that was warning the entire business sector that they really need to figure out to what extent their individual companies and enterprises were at risk because of climate change. And so they also have really ratcheted up their concern uh, about this problem. And we still have some political polarization, which has narrowed the scope of the Republican Party so that they have not really been willing to step forward and lead policy change on climate change. And I don't think that that was a wise decision. I think that, you know, that is going to hurt them in the long run, along with some of the other policy positions that they've taken. But you certainly had a federal government, a Congress where Democrats are in the majority and, you know, in a tremendous landscape of advocates around the country who have all together continued to demand, to ask, to, to visit, to talk, to tweet, to use Facebook, to use every form of social media and the press and, you know, local organizing to get the word out there and to make sure that the message to our policymakers was clear that we needed change. And that formula of federal support 
congressional attention, even if it's divided and the landscape of advocates, is that the necessary base momentum before you made progress in the Senate on public health before you, you know, how, as they say, the legislation was made. So if you could tell how the role of advocacy or the role of talking as an expert with Congress helped you with Senator Kennedy, it might be useful for them as takeaways. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I did work with Senator Kennedy and he was a terrific negotiator. I always tell people that he was the chair when Senator Hatch, a conservative Republican from Utah, was the ranking member. So they were the two most powerful people on our committee. And they disagreed about everything, but they also wanted to make progress uh, on health. We were the health committee. And so every year they would tell us, you know, we want to make progress on this topic. You, our staff, figure out how we can make progress. And they didn't agree at all, but we needed to figure out how to move forward anyway. And that was something that I saw on a regular basis there when I was working in the Senate. And I was really excited to hear Senator Charles Schumer, who was the Democratic majority leader of the Senate. And he said, well, you know, his father, who passed away just within the last year, told him that if you want to accomplish anything really good in life, that persistence is needed, that you have to keep at it, you have to continue working on it. And he really took that to heart. So persistence, willingness to negotiate, willingness to give ground, even when you don't really want to. Some of the things that are in this new bill are gifts to the fossil fuel industry. And none of the climate advocates are really happy about that. But this was what had to be given up in order to make the progress that we are now poised to make. And Senator Schumer realized that and was willing to do it. And I think the rest of his party in the Senate was behind him. They realized that he was going to have to make these concessions in order to make progress. So that willingness to negotiate and not to stand on an absolute point and being unwilling to bend is willingness to negotiate and to give ground and to compromise is also key. One of the things I enjoy being every six weeks able to be on your board of directors at the medical consortium and working with Ed and others, but your work running the board and the staff strikes me as easier to get progress based on because of its friendliness. That's very hard to achieve in Washington. I remember having a lunch at the Georgetown Inn with you and the legendary Frank Loy, who had been assistant secretary of state, and you were talking about your board. Can you tell us a little bit about who Dr. Steven Schroeder is and also Bill Novelli and how you chose to run the governance structure of this group representing many different professional medical societies through these two co-chairs. How did you think of it? Yeah, I'm going to turn that to Ed in just a minute. But first, I want to say that one of the reasons that they have made such a great leadership pair is that they are genuinely friends. They really like each other. Yeah. Uh, they trust each other and they have a rapport which has meant a great deal to the rest of the board and to all of us. Of course, people may not realize, especially if they're outside the U.S., that Steve Schroeder is one of the leading physicians in the country, and he headed up our largest healthcare foundation and philanthropy for a number of years, which is the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It's the largest healthcare philanthropy, the largest healthcare foundation in the United States. And he actually led that group for over a decade. So his standing and his stature in medicine is really up there. And of course, that made him somebody that we knew would be welcomed by all of our societies. And then Bill Novelli, who Ed can tell you a great deal more about, and I will turn it over to him in just a minute. But Bill Novelli is somebody who started in business and then the public sector. And on behalf of tobacco, which, as we know, was the leading cause of preventable death in the United States and in much of the rest of the world, moved into the nonprofit sector. Or he may have started in the nonprofit sector, moved into the business sector, succeeded, you know, beyond anybody's wildest dreams, and then went back into the public sector. And Bill Novelli took on tobacco. So that also put him 
you know, very high on the list in the minds of people in the medical sector. But Ed really knows both of them personally better than I do. Yeah. And the reason why we are so pleased to be able to work with them as the co-chairs of our advisory board is because we need to change America. Our aim, frankly, is to decarbonize America because the more rapidly we decarbonize America, the more rapidly we will have cleaner air, cleaner water, and better health. And the more America will be doing its part to stabilize the global climate. So we have big audacious goals. There's no question about it. And the reason why we're so fortunate to be able to work with Steve Schroeder and Bill Novelli is because these are two people who've worked at the highest levels of trying to change our country for the better. Both of them have had major successes and the place in history where they became friends is because Bill Lovelli created the campaign for tobacco-free kids, which brought the tobacco industry to its knees in this country. And he did that with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So Steve was essentially the patron and Bill was the point of the spear. And ultimately we really have had a dramatic influence on counter-marketing the availability of tobacco, and ultimately the rate at which both American adults and American children are using tobacco. And when they created the campaign for tobacco-free kids, I think approximately one out of three adults were smoking and about one out of three teens were smoking. And now it's down to the low double digits, maybe 12, 13% prevalence of smoking, which is in the annals of public health history, that goes down as one of the great accomplishments of all time, at least in, in American public health history. Let me just close my response to this question with the following anecdote from Bill Novelli. He always counsels us that we have an opponent, but the opponent is the fossil fuel industry. And we need to fight that opponent because right now they are winning. They really are the loudest and most uh, successful voice continuing the carbonization of the global economy. But this is the important point Bill constantly makes. We have to fight them, but we also have to talk to them because the talking may or may not do any good. But if we don't keep open the possibility that being in conversation, there's no possibility that they will ever change their minds and become part of the solution. There are many who believe we cannot stabilize the world's climate unless we have the world's fossil fuel industry as an active participant in that process because they have such a large and well-trained and knowledgeable workforce and they have many of the very fundamental skills that we most need in order to decarbonize the global economy. So coming back to why we're so fortunate to work with them, because they know how to fight hard, but also because they're wise enough to know that in addition to fighting hard, we need to be, as Mona said, we need to be having conversation across the aisle, whether that's the aisle to the fossil fuel industry or whether it's Republicans reaching across the aisle to the Democrats or vice versa. We need to pursue all of the above because this is humanity's biggest problem, our biggest challenge, and we need all of the best minds and all of the best hearts fully engaged in helping us solve this problem. Yeah, and I want to say something else about the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which is that it really is a bill which is using the financial structure of the country to stimulate business. This is a very different kind of solution than one might have conjured up some years ago. Back in 2010, Congress tried to do something on climate change and the main solution under consideration was a carbon tax. So that was also an effort to use the financial system. But this is a very different approach. This is putting out stimulus so that the business community can do what's necessary to build a clean energy economy. And so consumers can help support the growth of that clean energy economy by purchasing all those products that will allow individual people, individual families, individual communities to be part of the solution by owning electric cars by putting solar panels on their homes, 
by buying heat pumps to put in their homes, by improving the insulation in their private homes or buildings, and thereby cutting their heating and cooling costs. So, you know, this solution that they have just en enacted and will soon be signed by the president is a very different kind of solution than had been tried before to address climate change, but it's maybe not so different from other solutions that the U.S. has used to address other problems. It's less punitive and more supportive government as an enabler of needed change, as opposed to a draconian pillar of regulation about what you can't do. So I think that was, you've just characterized brilliantly part of the genius of it. Mona and Ed, and, you know, kind of put together how difficult it was to pass it. And yet it's signed. And as I understand it now, th this is the biggest piece of legislation in 40 or 50 years. I mean, it is a really impactful on the ordinary lives of Americans. And I think you've captured that as well. In listening to Dr. Mona Sarfati and Professor Edward Maybach, I thought about a couple of words that are important for the next and future generations. They speak of thriving. They speak of humanity coming up and mobilizing in response to the difficulties of climate change. And Ed talks specifically about the power and decarbonization. He also talks about drawing down and capturing and harvesting the heat trapping elements in the atmosphere. So both Mona and Edward helped us understand that we need a faith in the scientific and the technical capability to pull off decarbonization and the drawdown. But they also had, a, you can hear a lot of interesting statements as to why for the first time in history, a $400 billion law was phrased as the Inflation Reduction Act, as opposed to the Climate Challenge Act. And Mona has talked to us very thoughtfully about how you need the federal government and Congress and some businesses, but also a landscape of advocates to push through public health law as she experienced in the nine years she worked with Senator Kennedy. And it was very wonderful for them to talk at length about the chairs of their board of directors, Bill Novelli and also a Dr. Stephen Schroeder, who was CEO of the world's largest health not-for-profit, the Wood Foundation. So I think in this presentation, a couple of attributes are talked about in addition to thriving. And one of those is the persistence it takes to get a solution regarding climate change and public health. And now back to the interview. On the note of decarbonizing the pledge of the health and climate movement to decarbonize the U.S. health system, how is that being done? We are seeing so much momentum building on that front right now. I had the great good fortune of being at COP26 when the World Health Organization and Healthcare Without Harm announced what they called at the time the COP26 health program. And that health program was basically a national level pledge by nations to decarbonize their health sector and to take the actions necessary to make sure that their, their health service delivery system was resilient became more resilient to the impacts of climate change, like extreme weather, which not only is dangerous for people, but it's also dangerous for our buildings and our ability to get our health professionals to their clinics and get our patients to the clinics as well. So this COP26 health program became a pledge by nations to decarbonize their health sector and make their health system more resilient. We knew it was going to be announced. Before it was announced at COP26, I believe 42 nations had already indicated their desire to make the pledge. By the time we walked away from COP26, I believe we were up in, in the mid fifties. I don't know the exact number, but I know that at least 10 nations took the pledge while, while at COP26, which is a really dramatic signal of momentum behind this idea that the health sector, that health professionals, we need to be in the game. I believe the amount of greenhouse gas emissions, the emission of heat trapping pollution from the health sector worldwide is approximately 10%. And so while we can't solve this problem exclusively by decarbonizing the health sector, for all of the reasons we talked about earlier in our conversation, 
the fact that health voices are so trusted and they have the ability to articulate not only the reason why we need to decarbonize the world's economy, but the immediate health benefits of doing it. So to have the health sector rushing forward with this initiative on a global basis is so very helpful. Here in the U.S., the National Academy of Medicine, part of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, more recently, I don't remember the exact date, but they recently established what they're calling an action collaborative on decarbonizing the health sector in the U.S. And both Mona and I have the privilege of serving on that action collaborative. And it's creating incredible momentum here across the United States because the timing is right. And because of the impeccable credentials of our National Academy of Medicine, it's just adding dramatically to the momentum of this movement. So those pledges are wonderful. I didn't realize it was 10% of emissions. It's immense. But, you know, in terms of the pledge by countries across the world to keep the degree of change above pre-industrial levels to 1.5 degrees, I believe it's maybe just two countries that are really on track to meeting that. And so we're very heartened about the progress under the Biden administration. But not to stick to the alarmist message, what are the health consequences? Because it's extreme non-linearity, like things are fine and then suddenly they're not. So if we do arrive at that two degree world, what are we going to see? Oh boy. You know, the health consequences are great. There's no question about it. And we are looking at some catastrophes and even our mainstream television now, as of this last weekend is interviewing authorities that are saying, you know, as hot as it is right now, 2022 summer, we've got this heat dome over so much of the country. It's very difficult to live with. You are going to look back on 2022 and think what an easy summer that was compared to what it's going to be like 20 years from now. This was on a Sunday morning magazine television show. They were just putting it straight to the American public. So we are definitely facing a lot more heat, but we know what we need to do. We have the technology that we need to do it. We have the public support increasingly in this country and many other countries. And so we need just to do it, to get it done. And some of those countries that are not yet on board sufficiently still need to get on board. And China is a great example of that. No question about it. As a physician, we talk about prognoses all the time and the prognosis is guarded, but it's not hopeless by any means. And it will only get better if we take action. So we're asking everybody to join us in speaking to their neighbors, speaking to their families, speaking to their policymakers, and just making clear that everybody wants to see climate solutions and that we know that we'll have cleaner air to breathe, we'll have cleaner water to drink, and we will have greater freedom of movement if we can get a handle on our climate and stabilize our climate. So that's the message. Yeah. And let me add to that, if I can, the accepted goal of every country in the world as established at the Paris Climate Talks in 2015 is to limit the warming to no more than two degrees centigrade. Shortly thereafter, climate scientists of the world in the form of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the leaders of the world asked them to do an analysis. And the analysis they asked for is, is two degrees really the right goal? Or is that an overshoot? Are we making a mistake if we only limit the warming to two degrees? And so in 2018, they released a report and that report is that every tenth, one tenth of one degree of warming above 1.5 degrees of warming will cause, lead to considerable public health harm. And as Mona said, the prognosis is very guarded as to whether or not the, the nations of the world haven't adjusted the goal downward to 1.5 yet. They are now speaking in more aspirational terms. So the final statement from COP26 did talk about limiting the warming to 1.5 degrees if possible, or as close to it as possible, but it didn't officially set a new, more ambitious goal. But the point that I want to make here is every one-tenth of a degree of warming that we prevent is a gift to our children and our grandchildren and their children and their grandchildren, because it means we will have eliminated that much more public health carnage. 
So when people tell me we'll never make it, we're in for a future of nothing but pain and misery because we're going to overshoot 1.5 degrees. I try to make clear to them that every one-tenth of one degree of warming that we can prevent is a gift to future generations. And therefore, we owe it to them to fight to prevent every tenth of a degree of warming that is preventable. I want to bring up some of the themes of our discussion so far, where Mona talked about how the federal government and Congress and the landscape of advocates helped pass this historic law. And Ed talked about how Novelli warns that we have an opponent, the fossil fuel industry. So I'd like to close thinking about the businesses that are not the fossil fuel forces that have something to say that can embrace medicine and public health and science. So for example, I've spent most of my last 20 years, not on a medical board, but on corporate change management assignments at firms like Merck on their carbon neutrality efforts with Dr. Mona Altasan or firms like BP who are changing their learning experiences. And I'd like to sum it up in terms of five key words. One thing is the corporations are finally in my mind, after working on this since 1990, they're beginning to think of transformation as a requirement through the lens of being athletic. They're beginning to realize that you really can't be in shape as a business performer if you're a big greenhouse gas magnifier. And that might be called human performance elements. Another is about the agility, that to have the agility to live in a world that's changing towards clean energy rather than just the entrenched fossil fuel ways. There's also a lot of discussion in business these days from Google and Microsoft to Apple to others about the digitization part of decarbonization. That in fact, you have to demystify in business AI a little bit and talk data and talk about digital as part of the net zero journey. A fourth element has to do with commercial appeal. So just like we said so far that it was brilliant to call it a inflation reduction act. It's also brilliant to talk to business. You know, Novelli says you have to talk to the enemy in terms of commercial benefit, that there are possibilities for them to win in this uncertain world and to become a corporate athlete that goes to the bank positively. And then finally, I've spent way too much of my career on this fifth element of sustainability, where you help people visualize the near future as positive and achievable rather than dismal and despairing. So do you have any thoughts about the humanity of being an athlete, the agility skills, the digital skills, the commercial skills, and then also the sustainability elements? Because what I'm finding as a non-doctor on the board, doctors have a lot of those skills by their nature. Well, I just want to say that the American business community and the American scientific community and the technology community has shown for quite a while now a tremendous ability to innovate uh, and to lead the world in important new technologies that provide new capabilities and solve new problems. And I think of this as part of the DNA of the US, really, that our engineering capabilities, our scientific training, and the kind of freedom to innovate that our economic system permits people ability to raise capital and then to take that capital and to invest it in new ideas and new technologies, and even to innovate in the organization of the enterprises themselves. I am not a business person, but I certainly have followed over the years, the Jack Welch approach to organizing general, and then middle managers, no middle managers, better con contact between corporate executives and people who are on the front lines and just, you know, the loss of American manufacturing overseas and then trying to bring it back. And it, there's been so many changes in organizational structures and in theories of business and in new technologies, which have just completely changed the way we lead our lives. How many people are still buying vinyl records? How many people are even listening to CDs anymore? You know, the technology by which we entertain ourselves and by way which we keep our records you know, how many people are keeping all their records in paper anymore? Right. And not to mention, the, you know, what we've seen in our automobiles and our travel. And there's just so much innovating that I do think of this, as does Joe Biden, as part of the DNA of the United States at this I'm point. Thinking so that's a great strength. We need to keep in mind the great engineering and scientific 
talent and capability that's out there to transform to a cleaner energy future. I think we do also have to keep the rules and the marketplace with what you referred to as freedom to innovate. That is part of America's miracle in the world in that it's not bureaucratic like in China was for 10,000 years. And then the third category I heard you talk about is the ability to raise capital. That's not something we can ignore. To have a successful medical practice, you have to hire talented staff, talented nurses, talented PAs, and in a sense, have the capital to do it. So I see a lot of hope in what you just said about engineering, scientific talent, freedom to innovate, and the ability to raise capital. Humanity needs to do three things if it wants to continue to flourish. And it will, the three things that humanity needs to do are decarbonize the global economy, draw down, capture, harvest, whatever word you like, much of that heat trapping pollution that we've already pumped into the atmosphere over the past hundred years. Because as long as it's up in our atmosphere, we're going to have continued warming. And the third thing that humanity needs to do is become more resilient to the impacts of climate change, which unfortunately will continue for the next several generations at least, even as we succeed in decarbonizing the global economy and harvesting that trapping pollution from the atmosphere. So these are the three things that have to happen. These three things will happen. The open question is how rapidly will they happen? And my premise to you, Bruce, is that any business that can play a vital role in making any one or two or all three of those things happen, those are businesses that are going to flourish going forward. And any business that's sitting on the side and not contributing to one of those three areas, I really think they will become increasingly irrelevant, if not completely antiquated and increasingly understood to be harmful. So I'm both scared to death about what the future possibilities are, but I remain a real optimist that those three things are going to happen and the business community is going to play an incredibly important role because they are increasingly realized they have to be drivers of making those three things happen. I think so. The profitable solutions are out there. It's just about scaling them up and implementing and driving it out. And so it's so important that America is really on board. And finally, the business community is coming on too. Of course, important to stimulate the public procurements and all those elements so the individuals take them on board. Mona, you're one of the founders of the Thomas Jefferson University School of Population Health, and you also authored Climate Change and Population Health. What are your reflections on how, you know, it would buy us more time if we could keep our population under a certain level? You're talking about the size of the global population. Well, if you, you look at the publication Drawdown uh, by Paul Hawken, which I would recommend to everybody, they used a really fascinating methodology to come up with a whole series of ways that we can solve our problems and draw down the carbon dioxide that's currently in the atmosphere. But one of the things that they point to has to do with population. And so we do need to think about reproductive technologies and availability of reproductive technologies, access to them. There's far less access to means of birth control in many parts of the world than there should be. And so I think that is definitely one of the things that we need to do. And of course, that's very much related to women's education. It's been well shown that where a country improves women's education, the birth rate goes down because women have the ability to have more control over their own reproduction and to do other things than just give birth to children and take care of them. And so that's very much tied to education and education of women and girls is a key part of what we need to do. And I definitely would like to put in a plug for that because that's something that people should know. The more that we educate girls and women, the more we will deal with our population issues in a natural way. So as you both think about the future and education and of this planet that we're living for the next generation, who have been some important teachers and life lessons to you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Those are really important questions. I think, you know, we all have people in our lives who have been important examples to us. And I guess I, as Ed pointed out, I did work in the Senate for a number of years, and I do think a great deal about policy. I'm a doctor. I practice medicine. I care about health very deeply, care about my family, my grandchildren. But when it comes to the policy realm, I'd have to say that 
that period in which I worked in the Senate and under Senator Edward Kennedy, who was just a masterful negotiator, policymaker, compromiser, that I learned a tremendous amount about how to get things done. And interestingly, I mentioned to Senator Schumer recently, who it turns out was in my class in college, although we didn't really hang out together, we were in the same class and there was a reunion recently and I had an opportunity to speak with him. And I talked to him a little bit about Senator Kennedy and the work that I had done in that office. And, and he told me that Senator Kennedy had been a really important mentor to him when he first joined the Senate. So I think, you know, things come together there in a really nice way. Ed, is there something you would want to say about important life lessons? Yeah, I was not a particularly promising student, or nor was I a particularly promising young professional. But despite that, people have been generous with me at every step of the way in terms of teaching, in terms of mentoring, in terms of choosing to believe that maybe someday I would become promising and giving me the benefit of the doubt. And I, I'm grateful to all of them. The point I'd like to make is that for those of us in this conversation who are on the older side, we try to be as generous and gracious as my mentors have been to me, try to be that way with my students and anybody who asks for my help. And for young people, I would implore you to consider the fact that people who are more senior to you may well just have that level of generosity in them too. So approach them, ask them for that mentorship, ask them for their help. Because if you are looking to make an impact on the world, make a difference in the world, there are a lot of people who will want to help you do that. We've certainly learned a lot about the meaning of selflessness when it comes to serving the public, and you've both given us a much deeper understanding of the importance of passion and dedication when it comes to the betterment of all life. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and Business and Society. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Andrew Green. Digital Media Coordinator was Julia Rhodes. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.